good Hello there. good evening or that already <laughs> bring it up good afternoon how's it going it's good to talk to you for the first time yes it is good to talk to you as well you're listening to just one of the guys where i hope professor allen isn't too hurt that i didn't ask him specifically to be on the show Hello everyone and welcome to episode 110 of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Hi there, my name's Sean Engel, and it's my job on the show to cover the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date new November 2004, putting a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my two favorite Green Lanterns. And luckily this time out, we've got Kyle Rayner in the book. Well, it's a secondary book, a prestige format book called The New Core. If you remember, over the past couple issues, Kyle has been off-planet while Genuine Hayden, known as Jade, has been taking over the mantle of Green Lantern on Earth. Kyle has been searching the spaceways for new Lantern recruits, and he comes across a couple of people who he thinks might make good recruits. Unfortunately, by the end of the book, that might not be the case. Plus, as I said before, we're going to be covering the Green Lantern book, Green Lantern number 110, in which Jenny Lynn Hayden teams up with Connor Hawk in another Green Lantern-Green Arrow crossover. Although, it's not really that much of a crossover as Connor Hawk really has very little to do with the book. It's more about Jenny and her dad, Alan Scott. But we'll get more into that later in the show. But the one thing that I do want to say that's really going to be wonderful about this podcast today is that I've got a special guest on. You may know her from her show Uncovering the Bronze Age over at the Relatively Geeky site, as well as her other show, The Short Box Showcase, which she hosts with her father, Alan Middleton. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my privilege to have on the show today, Miss Emily Middleton. Hey, Emily. Thanks for coming on. Hey there, Sean. Hello, people of the internet. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. And I mentioned this, you know, beforehand. It is so great to have a female podcaster on here because pretty much any time I have another person on, it turns into a giant sausage fest. And I just, it, it's nice to be able to, and it's also nice to prove that I can occasionally talk to women as well. So that always helps. But I'm, I'm glad, glad to, to help out there. <laughs> I'm glad to have you on, even though that, uh, the Green Lantern and Green Arrow crossover here really is kind of out of your purvey. I mean, this is 90s stuff, so... Yeah, yeah. This is the first 90s book I think I've read in, like, four or five years, so... Well, th thank God you didn't come on to my uh, all-Rob Lightfield podcast, which I'm going to start soon. <laughs> I'm not going to start an all-Rob Lightfield podcast. I thought that no one will do that. Thank God. But anyway, we're going to do what we normally do here and take a little break, play a couple of promos, possibly one for Miss Middleton's podcast. And as soon as we get back, I will get into coverage of Green Lantern number 110. <laughs> 
Hey everybody, Magnus here. I do a podcast called Trinus Magnus Punches Reality. Most of the time I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows in general. But all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode of Trenis Magnus Punches Reality so that I can talk about Smallville. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics themselves, so I use every eighth episode of Trenis Magnus Punches Reality to subject the show to a borderline pornographic level of analysis, partly just to shoot the breeze about this awesome show, and partly to show the naysayers just how wrong they are about Smallville. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, an eighth episode feature of Trenis Magnus Punches Reality. And of course, I talk about Smallville in a way that's unrivaled in detail, unparalleled in epic scope, and unspeakably awesome in its awesomeness. Because I am Magnus, and awesome is how I do everything. So check out Magnus Talks About Smallville for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at. Magnus Talks About Smallville. Every 8th Tuesday, only at 2TrueFreaks.com. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. And we are back. So let's go ahead and take a look at Green Lantern number 110. This one was cover dated March 1999 and released on January 13, 1999, with a cover price of $1.99 U.S. and $3.25 Canada. The title was Golden Years, probably the opening song for the show. Writer was Ron Mars, penciler was Daryl Banks, inker was Terry Austin, colorist was Rob Schwager, letterer was Chris Eliopoulos, and the father of twins was Kevin Dooley. Damn you, Dooley, with your goofy annotations for your title. Yeah. <sighs> Looking upon a photo of himself as Green Lantern, Alan Scott ponders on his past, it all feeling so long ago. Suddenly, a spark of emerald energy engulfs him, causing the picture frame he was looking at to shatter. Concerned by the noise, Alan's wife Molly comes into the room to check on her, her heroic husband, only to find him covered with green flame. Molly cries out for the love of her life, but Alan tells her to stay away from him. It's best this way, as he explodes out of their Gotham brownstone. Cut to New York City, where a rain-drenched Kyle Rayner is surprising his girlfriend, Jenny Lynn Hayden, with an early return from space and a bouquet of ring-construct flowers. Shocked to see her space-faring beau, Jenny pulls Kyle toward her and plants a passionate kiss on him. Sadly, Kyle's return is nothing more than a wet dream. I, 
wait, no, it was raining, he was wet, and she was dreaming. That's what I meant. I'm sorry. I uh, don't know if you thought I meant somebody else. Anywho, Jenny curls up on Kyle's mattress, saddened by the fact that she's still all alone. But that feeling is about to be cut short as a shadowy figure climbs in through the bedroom window, startling Jenny and causing her to ring up some bodyguards to subdue the intruder. Luckily, the intruder isn't just any person who crawls into unsuspecting windows in the middle of the night. The intruder is Connor Hawk, better known as the Green Arrow. Flipping on the lights, Jenny apologizes for the awkward welcome as she comments on Connor's new sexy style, Telly Sabala's hairstyle. Connor shyly thanks Jenny and asks where Kyle is, and Jenny relates the story of Kyle getting an extra power ring and heading out into space to try and start up a new core, living her here on Earth as Green Lantern. She then asks what brought him to her third floor window, and Connor tells her that he wanted to talk to Kyle about his father, Oliver Queen, possibly not being dead. And with Kyle having daddy issues of his own, he figured the two could relate. Jenny mentions that she had some parental problems as well, what with her father being de-aged almost to one of her peers. But the Oprah moment is broken up by a late-night phone call. Jenny picks up the phone to hear a concerned Molly Scott on the other line. Finishing the call and making sure that her stepmother is alright, Jenny relates the news to Connor. Something went wrong with her dad. He literally burst into flames, then disappeared. Jenny says that she has to go after him, and Connor says that he's going to come along too for help. After Jenny rings up her uniform, the hard-traveling heroes, in a slightly altered form, are back in action again. Cut to an upstate warehouse near Gotham that Jenny and Connor are investigating. It turns out that after the earthquake that rocked Gotham City, Alan Scott had much of his items from the JSA headquarters stored here for safekeeping. The duo head inside the building, and after passing by various JSA memorabilia, they come across Alan, burning with emerald energy. Jenny tries to approach her father, but he pushes her away, saying that he's at the end and his powers are out of control. Jenny begs for him to let her help, but gets a blast to her face for her troubles. Connor catches the catapulted catwalker and offers to help, but Jenny says that his Robin Hood playset just wouldn't cut it against this type of power. Nonplussed, Connor reaches for an arrow and breaks off the broadhead as Jenny engages her dad in some cross-generational Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved. Knocking the arrow and pulling back the string, Connor thinks back to how his father also had to take out a Green Lantern brimming with power, then releases the arrow, planting the shaft deep into Alan's shoulder. This is enough to diminish his power and allow Jenny to get close enough to help him dissipate the cascading energy. Crisis averted, Jenny replaces her father's battle-torn clothing with something a little more suitable, his original Green Lantern costume. The story wraps up with a jaded 90s douchebag who was kicked out of his girlfriend's car and left to hitchhike his way home. Lighting a cigarette, the Bud Honey miscreant moseys along the highway until he catches a glimpse of, a, uh, catches a glimpse of light coming up from behind him. Hoping that it's a car that can take him back to his filthy Seattle hovel, the man turns around, only to find out the light was coming from a hovering spaceship, which beams him into its interior, probably for some uncomfortable probing. that was the end of issue 110 of green lantern uh emily do you have some notes or some general thoughts about this uh well 
not really. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Uh, this is uh, not what I was expecting, we shall say, even just from the uh, the cover that it the the cover has Jade making out with Connor and doing this whole really billing it as though it is a team up. And as you mentioned, it really kind of isn't. Mm hmm. Connor's more the sidekick, just sort of along for the ride as she's working out her daddy issues. Yes. So the the story for me was, you know, uh, all right. I I enjoyed it, but it's it's not didn't really speak to me a lot. Uh, the the art was actually really bugging me, and this this is the first issue from this run that I've read, and. I don't know, like, is this art standard? Because yeah. especially just on page two, for some reason, it is like, it's the style is really not working for me. Yeah, well, the thing is, and I, I've i noticed this a lot, and I hate to say this, ever since Terry Austin, who by all rights is considered to be a fabulous inker, his work with John Byrne is considered, you know, some of the best around. But I don't think Terry Austin is the right inker for Daryl Banks. A lot of times I've complained in previous episodes about Terry Austin's inks on the book being very inconsistent. And I'm, I know what you're talking about on page two because we look at that uh, second panel there where we get the shot of Molly screaming. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 it looks – you know I've commented on this before in the show. It looks like a blow-up doll. It's yeah. Got, oh, that it. Yeah. She's got, I was trying to figure out why I was. Why am I so uncomfortable looking at that? This image. That would be it. That's why. There. You know. Ew. Banks. Banks and uh, Austin, when they've been inking on this book, have done a lot of these sort of shocked, open mouth images that look like this, and you kind of get that feel. So I can understand that. Yeah. I think Daryl Banks would be more suited. Uh, if he had a better, well, not a better, but a different inker. When he was with Romeo Tangal, I think the book was a lot better. And I think also, along this time, I've really come to enjoy Paul Pelletier working on this book. And Paul Pelletier right now, currently, if you're uh, picking up the new 52 stuff, is doing the Aquaman book and doing some... Oh, there. I love Aquaman. Yeah, and uh, his work, uh, you can really see... Uh, the evolution of Paul Pelletier's work from Green Lantern to Aquaman, and you can see a lot of relationships to it. It's it's really good stuff. But yeah, here in this book, the artwork, it ebbs and flows, and is that uh, sometimes is very inconsistent. Going back to the cover, I agree. It is a very deceptive cover. The artwork on the cover, I think, is probably some of the better artwork in the book. But yeah, you Definitely. make it, you make it feel it makes it feel like it's going to be a big team up between them and i love jenny you know kissing connor because if you know if you don't know anything about connor hawk the idea behind him is he leads sort of he led most of his life in a ashram with a bunch mm -hmm. of monks so he learned how to to be an archer an amazing archer and do all these trick stunts but he has basically no relationship with the outside world so I, I think they captured a great look on his face with the sort of wide eyes, even though yes, as he's being, you know, amorously kissed by Jade, which is, you know, I don't know, maybe she shouldn't be cheating on Kyle, but whatever. Yeah. Um, 
as for uh, I'll go ahead and since you're not so don't have so many notes, I'll go ahead and go and you can comment along if you have anything. The the third page where Kyle comes in in the window, mm-hmm. I think that's also some really good artwork. Uh, I think it's the inking isn't as thick. There's a lot of nice detail. The the rain kind of dripping off it looks good. However, I will have to I will have to ding Kyle on this. Bringing ring construct flowers for your girlfriend is like the cheapest thing that you can ever do. I mean, that's even again like after you've don't... been in space. Mm-hmm. You've been in space. It's not like you've been in I don't know Jersey. You can, <laughs> you can pick up some. You can go find some daisies for her. Yeah, I know. It's and. Yeah, I mean that's that's worse than just dropping by Seven Eleven and getting her one of those giant size cards or anything. That's just really, really a lame gift. Uh, I did notice on the next page, and this is this is something that I just noticed uh, about the uh, framing of it. The framing of the panels out there is kind of wavy and you know not as linear as the other panels, and I, I like that because obviously this is a dream sequence. This mm-hmm. is all going on in Jenny's head, and when it you know, goes to the next page and we get more the reality going on, the the page borders get uh, more angular and everything. So I like that they're kind of using that as a sort of framing sequence to give people the idea that this isn't actually going on in reality. Right. Yeah. And I, I just picked up on I just picked up on that as soon as you mentioned it. But now it's like, oh, yeah, that, that that's a, a really good sort of artistic decision there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get to the next page. And the page where Jenny's got the, you know, she's got her fist out in front of her, the the artwork just gets wonky again. And this is the thing that I can't stand about it. The artwork goes from really incredibly good stuff to just really outright wonky and people looking wrong. So it's, yeah. it's disturbing. Yeah, the the way it sort of felt to me was uh, it, it almost feels like a webcomic at times mm-hmm. with this very sort of loose penciling and weird proportions and thick inks. And it just makes the whole thing feel sort of unfinished. Well, and and that's the thing, because I'm wondering if if it may not be. I know comics take a while to do, but it seems like. From page to page, sometimes even from panel to panel, things look dramatically different and mm-hmm. you would you would think there would need to be some sort of consistency throughout the book to keep a, a certain visual flow for it, but there doesn't seem to be that. And that's that's one of the most disappointing things about about this book. Um, moving on to page seven, I do like, uh, like I've mentioned before, I, I, I like Connor's naivete uh, that he's heard that Jenny and Kyle are living together, but he doesn't know that they're sleeping together and mm-hmm. he just decides to sit down on the bed right next to him and and he reala- <laughs> after after he figures out what's been going on he's he's in it's, oh uh... yeah, this bed might be covered in things yes. that I don't want to understand so yes yeah, so that's after that i i've got to comment on some really good art and that's on page 9 the the middle uh three panels where Jenny's talking to Molly i think and this is something that I think Pelletier does a lot better than uh, Daryl Banks as an artist is drawing facial expressions. Because if you remember that one that we had at the beginning with Molly screaming, looking like a blow up doll, yeah, that was really awful. But here you get this progression of uh, 
of her hearing what's going on and looking really concerned. And the final, the, the fourth panel there where she's got that sort of shocked expression on her face actually looks really well rendered. So again, I think the inconsistency, the inconsistency of this comic is one of the things that's sort of its downfall. Right. <clears throat> I'll go ahead and get to the uh, part where Jenny and Connor go to the uh, JSA warehouse. And I like the fact that there's kind of a nod to what's going on in the, in the DC universe, because I think this happened right around the time of a comics line in uh, Batman called cataclysm, where there was a giant earthquake that basically tore up uh, Gotham city and the, the government basically shut the city down, which led into no man's land, which a lot of people Uh regard as one of the, uh, one of the best sort of ongoing storylines in uh, Batman for a long time. Uh, unfortunately, it's one that I haven't read, so I had to get that information off Wikipedia. But I like the fact that uh, they mentioned that and when they're uh, talking about Alan having to move all the JSA stuff out of Gotham. But on this panel on page 11, as they're trying to enter this uh, warehouse, mm-hmm. Jenny decides that the best way to do that isn't like you know picking the lock or perhaps even using her ring to sort of uh, allow her to pass through it because we've seen lanterns be able to do that. No, she decides to build up a couple of bruisers, basically to rip the the, the garage door of it open. Yeah, and uh, this is actually my first experience reading any book that has Jade in it. I've, I'd heard of her a couple times before, but I'd never actually read any of her appearances. And I've got to say, I... As far there, there isn't a lot of, I don't really feel like character beats where we get to know her or Connor very well. At least for me, because this is my first, the, the first time I've met either of them. But I love her constructs, and that's something I really like about Green Lantern is that how much of a, a person's personality and uh, their sort of thought process you can tell just from the construct. That I, I can see why she and Kyle would be an item that they're both kind of big personalities that she doesn't she doesn't go for subtlety she's like oh i need to get in there eh, i'm just gonna rip the door off its hinges <laughs> no i agree and i like it yeah i will admit this isn't really a character building storyline this is essentially sort of a wrap-up storyline dealing with what happened with alan scott so that is one of the negatives about this story you don't get much character i think in previous books that we've had green lantern and green arrow crossovers when we've had more than just one issue to deal with characters. We've had a lot more character development, a lot more interaction. But yeah, this is just pretty much a, hey, what's going on with Alan Scott issue and Green Lantern and Green Arrow happen to be in it. So, Right. Um, there's a little comment here that Jade makes on page 12 on the third panel. She says, it was, uh, he says he was different in the days. It's funny, his ring was so powerful, but it didn't work against wood. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a point that will uh, that will play out later in the issue. So, thank thank goodness she seeded this in Connor's head. Otherwise, we couldn't have the uh, resolution the way it had. Um, after that, my next note is on page sixteen, where after Connor breaks off the uh, broadhead for the for his arrow. Now, I, I'm no archer. I have shot a bow before, mm-hmm. but if you're looking at page sixteen. And that uh, second panel there where Connor's getting ready to fire it. That's not how you fire an arrow. The uh, 
the the knock is on the wrong side. He's firing right-handed. He's got the bow held in his left hand. He's pulling back. And normally, if you're firing an arrow, it should be... He's knocking on his left arm. Yes. (laughs) And if you fire it that way, first of all, the fletching on the end of it is going to rub against the bow and it's going to take it off. Unless you... I guess the only way you might be able to no-prize this would be that he knows that the arrow is going to go wonky because he's broken off the uh, the broadhead of it, so he's compensating it for it by shooting on the opposite side. But I would put it more to the fact that this is just the artist not knowing how you fire a, a bow and arrow. But uh, yeah, that just kind of took me out of the book for just a little bit there. Yeah, I, I think I, I would probably I would probably justify it like he's drawing but not yet aiming because he's pointed in a completely different direction in the uh third panel that he 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 seems to be in a a better position it's maybe to imply movement but i i think it's just bad art Mm -hmm. really and speaking of bad art we get the worst i'm sorry this is just awful on it's on the same page that bottom panel oh yeah uh alan scott look uh, i okay look at alan scott's body and then look at the positioning of his head. It looks like someone lopped off his head and then just stapled it to his left <laughs> shoulder. It's just, it's just bad. Yeah. And and the thing is, I know these guys can do good art, uh, whether this is rushed or what it is. But uh, Daryl Banks's art throughout the book has just been sort of not as not as good as I've I've seen it before. Well, I was just gonna say, well, it's 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 good to know that he can do better than this, but well, that's... It's, if you look at some of if you look at some of his earlier stuff, like uh, when he started out with in the run with uh, you know, w- with the Emerald Twilight storyline, that was some really amazing artwork there, and I don't want to attribute to Terry Austin being the inker, but it the more and more I look at it, the more and more I kind of have to feel that way. Um, I do think. Finally, the the panel on page 20 where we get the reveal, sort of the full-page splash of Alan Scott there in his traditional Green Lantern uniform. Yes. I've, got, I've got to say I like that. I, I like it, first of all, because the fact the costume looks like real clothing. Mm-hmm. And plus it also looks like real clothing that a person would wear. It doesn't look like it was you know manufactured by some... Uh, super secret technology Edna Mode person. It looks like just regular clothing. Now, granted, a giant purple cape, you know, isn't regular clothing unless you're a, oh, a Latvian dictator or maybe a, 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 a vampiric person from Transylvania. But I think it looks cool. And I think this is a good image of Alan Scott. And I think it's primarily because of the fact that the original Green Lantern costume is very iconic. Mm hmm. It's an outfit that really never should work, but it it really does. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I I might as well ask this: Have you read any of the uh, Earth Two, uh, the new Earth Two stuff with uh, Alan Scott and the members of the JSA in that? I have not. I am I am aware of them, but I have never actually read any of their books. See, I haven't either, and I'm kind of wondering. You know, I've heard that they're that James Robinson treated Alan Scott really well in it because initially I was kind of concerned when they had mentioned that Alan Scott was going to be gay 
in mm-hmm. the Green Lantern book uh, or in the Earth 2 book. But I, I should have – I've said this before. I should have realized that uh, James Robinson would do it well. And he kind of said because of the fact that DC had taken away a uh, competent gay character in the guise of Obsidian, who is mm-hmm. Alan Scott's son, he decided to give the character – you know, bring back a character who is gay in the book and make Alan Scott gay. And I think that really worked. And from all I've heard, he's not portrayed Alan Scott as a gay character. He's portrayed him as a superhero who happens to be gay. And if, if that kind of makes sense, it, right. he, hasn't, he hasn't made him a, a general Will and Grace stereotype. Yeah, he, it, he's not, he doesn't feel like a token or a yes, stereotype. So. Yes, and, and I, I should have realized that, that having James Robinson do that he wasn't going to go down that road because he's been incredibly respectful for to the uh, to the golden age characters. But the story wraps up with, uh, like I said, the sort of 80s, you know, grunge looking, you know, smoker guy. And again, I'm looking at page 21. We got if you didn't have the female blow up doll, you've got the male blow up. Doll. <laughs> <sighs> it's just awful. But um this is a, a little bit of seeding to uh, an enemy that's going to be coming up later in Kyle's book. So for people who uh, uh, have been reading this, you'll know who he is. And for people who don't, you know, he's just some douchebag who's going to get abducted by aliens and, you know, probed in various orifices. So there you go. Awesome. Yeah, but that does it for uh, Green Lantern number 110. Uh, do you want to go ahead and take a little break? And uh, as soon as we get back, we can go into the uh, new core. Sure. All right, then. I will go ahead and call this done. Uh, We'll take that little break, play a couple more promos, and when we get back, Green Lantern, the new core, number one. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again, may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead, Tintin, Black Lightning, White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this Ultra... Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession and reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. Calabac, Desaad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. 
Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Dedrick, and Arisia and Woody Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Trine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water podcast. And once again, we have returned to take a look at Green Lantern, the new core number one. Are you ready for this one? I am. I'm, I'm excited to talk about this one. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, I'm glad to hear that because I think, yeah, this is a little, not bearing the lead. I think this is a little better issue as well. This one was cover dated in 1999, and it was released on January 20th of 1999. The cover price was a whopping $4.95 and a <laughs> even more whopping $7.95 in Canada. Holy cow. God. <laughs> Poor Canadian listeners. Well, uh, I've only got one Canadian listener. Writer was Chuck Dixon. Penciler was Scott Eaton. Inker was Annabelle Rodriguez. Letter was Jenis Chang. Colors and Separations, bordered by Chris Chuckery, and the editor was Kevin Dooley. Orbiting a gas giant in the Genericon sector, two members of a bug-like alien race monitor an, an anomaly headed their way, one traveling at immense speed and made, of, made purely of energy. As the anomaly approaches, the aliens see that it's only Kyle Rayner, the last Green Lantern in the universe, tooling through the spaceways in his swanky Cadillac convertible. Kyle laments the trip being such a slog, but he realizes that what he's doing is worth the frustration. Ever since Hal Jordan entrusted him with a power ring that could be replicated, Kyle knew that he had to start bringing back the Green Lantern Corps, and that's why he's on this... Star Trek... to recruit Green Lanterns. And as luck would have it, Kyle stumbles, stumbles across a planet that could desperately use an emerald detector. Entering the atmosphere, Kyle witnesses a brutal war going on, with one side about to be completely decimated. Certain that he's helped the, helping the oppressed side, Kyle streaks into action, taking out the forces with Construct Anvils and Big Belly Boys. Having repelled the attackers, Kyle asks to be taken to the camp's leader, and he's quickly introduced to Magan Van Intractus, an elder of the planet Vaughn, whose people only wanted to live in freedom. Magan shows Kyle that the single-minded council that his forces are up against, and Kyle offers up something he thinks he could turn the tide, a Green Lantern ring. Cut to the next attack, and things go decidedly different as Kyle and Magan mop off the forces with a variety of emerald constructs. Having won the day and sharing a manly proto-fist bump, Kyle and Magan celebrate their victory with the Matrix Revolution style of freak party. After giving the newest lantern a rundown on how to use the ring, Kyle heads off to find more recruits as Magan proclaims that the war will end soon, but justice goes on forever. Back in space, Kyle plays Silver Surfer as he attempts to find even more recruits. It's a tougher job than he expected, and he has no idea what you would classify as sentient, much less willing to wield the ring. Stopping on what he thinks looks like a promising planet, Kyle encounters a starving female who he tries to help out. 
Unfortunately, the female was just a decoy attached to the tongue of an Empire Strikes Back space slug wannabe who wants to have Kyle for lunch. Literally. But before Kyle can become a tasty snack, a gun-toting Chuck Dixon alien comes to the rescue, blasting away at the beastie and tossing, tossing a fusion grenade down his throat. Crisis averted, Kyle introduces himself to Hammeroon, the diminutive bounty hunter, and tells him of his quest to start a new corps. Hammeroon asks Kyle if he'd like to tag along, and the two head off to a place called the Way Station. On the way, the ship receives a distress signal, and Kyle coerces Ham to go and investigate. Leaving the ship, Kyle discovers a wayward Russian t space capsule, complete with a cryogenically frozen cosmonaut, one Anna Savenlovich. The crew thaw the Russian out and inform her that she's been frozen in space for nearly 35 years, which, shockingly, causes her to pass out. Some time has passed, and the trio has made their way to... Way Station, okay? Ham issues an Obi-Wan level of warning to the newbies, and the crew departs to refuel the ship and take in the sights. The trio heads to the local restaurant to get a quick and hopefully non-mobile meal, when a security alarm causes Kyle to spring into action. It appears that a Bo Smith alien is busting some heads on the way station, and Kyle and crew decide to lend a hand. After the brawl is over, the forearm bruiser introduces himself as Garl Rathbone, a simple miner who's trying to make his way in the world, and Kyle introduces himself as the law here around these parts. But the security forces at Waystation have a difference of opinions as they blast the quartet with a stun ray. Some more time has passed, and Kyle awakens in the Waystation holding cell with the attending brawlers. Garl relates that he was doing a bit of gambling with some of the folks in the cell, and since one of them was reading his mind, he lost over three cycles worth of pay. Without his rings, there is no way for Kyle and company to get out of the holding cell, except for the wholly just and honorable legal system. Of course, space doesn't seem to have a Johnny Cochran, and the evidence against our heroes seems pretty damning in the eyes of Judge Sewell. But luckily, Anya has an ace up her sleeve, in the form of a countdown ticking vision detonator. Wetting their pants in fear, the lawyers and bailiffs flee the courtroom as Hammeroon and Garl grab some weapons and Kyle grabs his rings. Kyle pops up a protective dome over the group and cuts to the floor, allowing the fantastic foursome to escape the clutches of the now-ranting Sewell. Realizing that they can't make it back to Ham's ship, Kyle rings up War Rocket Agents to bring back his body. Sorry, I mean to get the heck out of Dodge. Concerned that he's not faring as well as he hoped to on this mission to rebuild the Lantern name throughout the cosmos, Kyle takes some comfort in the fact that he made the right choice with McGann. Unfortunately, we cut back to McGann's planet, where we see the latest Lantern has used his newfound power to place himself all Conan-like upon a kingly throne, the people he promised to save, now his subjugated slaves. And there we go, the prestige format, new core number one. Emily, go ahead and hit me up with some notes. Well, I I loved this one. Uh, it was, I'll just say in a word, like more interesting. There was more going on in this one, which is definitely helped by the fact that it was significantly longer. But uh, it, it has this sense of, um, of humor that I think really works. And uh, I, I pointed this out to my dad as soon as I was reading it that everything that i both love and hate about kyle rayner is encapsulated in page four where he's just driving around space in this ridiculous 
green construct Cadillac convertible with a Hal bobblehead on his dashboard. Mm-hmm. That it's almost so it's it's like so ridiculous that if I were expected to take it seriously, I'd be kind of mad. But it it has this it it really just works well with a sense of humor that it's got that it it takes itself just seriously enough that I'm invested, and then quips constantly has really fast paced jokes and comments, so I really enjoyed that. We're spending basically all of the time in Kyle's head that mm-hmm. there's tons and tons and tons of captions and internal monologue, and I thought I was going to get annoyed by that, but not at all. I, it works really well. Uh, I love the uh, ragtag group that he's come up with. I love fantasy. I love D&D. I love ragtag bands of people traveling mm-hmm. through wherever, fighting injustice, righting wrongs, getting into shenanigans. I think I think a lot of this comes particularly from uh, Chuck Dixon, and I find it kind of ironic when your father was on doing the uh, Green Lantern Green Arrow crossover that we had a while back. That one of the stories was from War on Mars, and the other story was from Chuck Dixon. So you know, a bit of synchronicity coming along here. But I think a lot of the storytelling and the humor and the action come from Ch- Chuck Dixon's writing. He is, in my opinion, one of the best story writers for this kind of genre and i think this is actually the first time that chuck dixon has act has written a green lantern kyle rayner story you know that hasn't been uh like a crossover event between green arrow or anything else this is his first thing and he does a really good uh, he does a really good job of it and yes i i i can see where you're talking about kyle not only can he be sort of the sort of the nineties type guy with the attitude and everything. And it, it does really capture that, that, that uh, bottom panel on page four with him, just, you know, his arm over the uh, seat of the Cadillac and just that sort of starky smile. But uh, I think the dialogue that uh, Dixon provides really sells the story and makes him not only gives him that sort of nineties type of possible douchebag feel, but also makes him very engaging as well. So I really like it. Sort of um, charismatic douchebag. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the kind of the kind of person that you just love to hate, or not really love to hate, or hate to love, I guess, because he's just so. There, there are some things that just really annoy about. He's just too cute and too uh, good looking, but he's also a really enjoyable character to get behind. Uh, you know, um, I, I too agree that the. Uh, the team dynamic that he's starting up here really has a sort of archetypal feel. And that you mentioned D and D and I can see that sort of thing that the, the various different characters that you'll find, we've got obviously the big bruiser and the forearmed character of Garl. We've got the sort of sneaky stealthful person in Hammeroon, the person out of time in, in Anya. So I, I kind of felt more, I got sort of more of an X-Man type vibe because I sort of saw Hammeroon as kind of either a Wolverine or if you want to go to Alpha Flight, a sort of Puck type character. Yeah. But uh, it's it, it's calling from, you know, comic book archetypes, but it's it's not calling from them and trying to be mocking or anything. It's, it's taking from those ideas and just putting into a different book and it's doing it really well, I think. I've got a few page by page notes. Uh, I'll go ahead and start on page one. I... A lot of times during this era, you'd get a lot of the sort of computer digital coloring. Mm-hmm. And 
all every once in a while that's nice, but it's kind of nice, especially on this first opening page. We get that uh, gas giant that the uh, alien sh- alien yes. space station is going over. That just really looks beautiful. It looks painted. The coloring on it's just really nice. I don't think that's something that the inker or the artist did. That's all coloring, and it's not digital. It looks like it's all painted, so I really like that, and especially in this era where digital coloring can be really hit and miss. Uh, moving on to page three, Kyle. Again, this is something that Kyle would do. Rather than flying around in space, you know, the typical thing that you would see most Green Lanterns doing, just flying a la Superman, Kyle's got to pimp it up. And he's got to be in a giant convertible Cadillac tooling through space. I think that's just, it, it does kind of show his personality and his style. And it differentiates, you know, his constructs from the way other Lanterns would use their constructs. And that's kind of neat. Exactly. Um. The uh, the dialogue, yeah, it's it's typical Kyle, but it's written in a really fun way, and I I I don't have a I don't have a problem with that. Um, I do want to know on page four, Kyle mentions talk radio out in space. Ju- just as a query, do you think Kyle would be more of a uh, NPR fan or more of a Rush Limbaugh fan? Mm. I'm thinking NPR personally. I don't think I don't think Kyle would swing for. You know the sort of conservative talk radio thing. No, I honestly he does not he does not strike me as a talk radio guy of any kind whatsoever. I'm like, uh, I don't know what what would he be listening to? Well, like, a lot a lot of times during the show he would, uh, he, or not during the show during the books he would uh, be wearing like. In fact, when he was first encountered, he was wearing a nine inch nails t shirt. So mm-hmm. I see. see I was going to be. I'm like. Like, hmm, there's got to be some some Megadeth or something that he's listening to. Yeah, I can see. It. Well, I think he's he's more into the sort of '90s alternative type stuff. So I could see him listening to, Ace you know, Allison Chains, <laughs> Ace of Space. Don't care. Okay. Well, I guess. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm. I. I could basically talk. Oh, he could be listening to Frank Sinatra, and you wouldn't know what I'd be talking. Well, I know you'd know what. But yeah, page ten, panel three where Kyle rings up some constructs to take down the uh, enemy forces, supposedly enemy forces. I do yeah. like that they make a reference to uh, Big Belly Boy, which yeah. is... I'm which assuming is, that's, that's their frishes. Yeah, it's it. Yeah, um, we have... Uh, what is it? Kip's Big Boy is the one that we have kind of... or we used to have around here. But yeah, it's the... In the DC Universe, sort of like... Uh, oh, what's the cola that they have? Soder. Soda cola, yes. I love soda. Big, big belly, co- big belly burger is one of the uh, sort of uh, analogs like Denny's, or uh, I guess um, IHOP or whatever in the uh, DC universe. It's just a sort of uh, generic diner that they have, and so big belly burger. They usually have this, uh, you know, little kid in this overalls standing out in right. front. So it's nice to see that kind of con- Kyle pulling at that kind of construct and linking that to the. Uh, greater DC universe. I am kind of irked about Kyle being sort of naive. He gets a one page description of what's going on from this guy and he totally trusts him. Yeah. It just, it just doesn't work for me. I mean, I I know Kyle can sometimes be very trusting and uh, not really naive, but this is just way too naive. I mean, he's going to be building a brand new Green Lantern Corps 
and the first person he comes across in the middle of a war who just happens to be a very smooth talker he gives you know the most powerful weapon in the universe to uh, it just it, it diminishes Kyle as sort of a credible character in this in this page right uh when i when i was reading this i i definitely felt the same sort of sort of frustration with Kyle of like no you you idiot why would you just give this guy why this random dude that you came across a ring without investigating any of the political issues that might be going on or any of the underlying conflicts but i think that within the context of then they spend the next uh you know 3 to 6 pages something like that sort of showcasing all of his other attempts to find even sentient life that i actually i sort of get it that he's like okay someone who is recognizably sentient step one i managed to find one and step two i i i'll i can follow kyle's logic because this guy is the leader of a resistance and uh something that i'd like now correct me if i'm wrong but kyle is like an like an illustrator like a comic book guy yeah, he's he's graphic arts or illustration. I don't know if he particularly does comics. He might do that in his spare time, but most of the time it's graphic design. So yes. Okay. Um, because uh, what I am mostly familiar with Kyle from is um uh, a a Justice League story called Midsummer Nightmare. Yes. Uh, in which he is like a, a struggling comic artist. So, uh, for for me, this almost sort of made sense because it. it would appeal to that sort of underdog sense of the world mm. that I, I can, I can get that he would see, Oh, this guy is trying to, he's, he's being, you know, like a, you know, a, a Luke or something like that, that he's, he's the leader of this rebel force that's trying to fight for justice and survival. I can, I can follow his logic, even if the, at the exact same time, I'm just going, Oh, this is going to turn out so incredibly badly. It, it didn't. It didn't ruin anything for me. No, also, and like it, it, it is. It is kind of a trope of the stories that the the first person you meet, you know, who has good intentions, that turns out to be the uh, the big bad at the end. That's not uncommon in in comic book storytelling, but you don't mind it. And I think I think it works for the uh, for the narrative here. But uh, and, and I agree. The uh, the pages where Kyle's just out exploring space and trying to figure out who should he give the ring to. I think, first of all, it's it's very interesting that he's being this introspective about it, that he's mm-hmm. trying to figure out how do I determine who would be worthy enough to have a Green Lantern ring? Do I just give it to anyone? And, you know, what kind of life actually would, would be suited to do this? Uh, initially, I think the reason that he gave it to... Uh, to Entrakis or Magan at the beginning was the fact that he was humanoid and the rest right. of the people that he encounters throughout uh, these couple of pages, which I have to say are just wonderfully drawn. I mean, mm-hmm. these are some, this is some really good artwork here by Scott Eaton here. And uh, most of these things are very, very odd. You've got the sort of electrified aliens on uh, page 1718 or 1819. You've got the weird, underwater fish worm type things, the sort of cloud-like aliens. It's all just very, very trippy mm-hmm. type stuff. And then he gets to the uh, the big space slug. And I've got to, again, Kyle being kind of naive, 
in that uh, on page 23, that first panel there where he sees the woman, uh, you know, kneeling down. If you look right up above them, those are teeth. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you can't can't not see that. But uh, there again, you know, it it's for the story. Kyle just plays it kind of naive. I guess he's allowing himself to be a little cocky. But that that starts bringing in the rest of the cast that we'll see that would eventually come to uh, where the lantern rings. You know, spoilers. That's what's going to happen in the next issue. Right. But there, there's some really fun. There's some really fun archetypes. There's the little sort of rogue bounty hunter in Hammeroon. You know, love him. I just he he gets some of the best dialogue, and I I think that even though he doesn't kind of get the references that Kyle is talking about, he plays well off of him. It's a sort of Luke and Han thing, or 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 the the sort of you know knowledgeable rogue character and the sort of um you know, a naive schoolboy type character. And I, I again yeah. call to the Han and Luke type thing and it works really well. Um, I, I also like it that it's um, it, sort of going back to the simple definition of Green Lantern is that it's a, a bunch of space cops, mm-hmm. but this really does bring us our, our buddy cop sort of yes. feeling of the, the, the short punk who's got all the, all the, quips and but also all of the knowledge and he's rough and tough and he he knows the seedy underside of the universe and the young rookie and i don't know like it, it's just he, they're they're back and forth it's yeah. just great throughout the whole thing oh yeah they're the and that's one of the things i think chuck dixon does as as pre- predominantly an action writer he he knows i mean i would love to see chuck dixon doing some some writing for some of the action movies because as much as I love Shane black and I think he did a great job sort of writing and uh, directing the latest Iron Man movie. Mm-hmm. I would love to see Chuck Dixon do that because he's got the same sort of style, but uh, yes, the, then we get introduced to the, uh, the uh, secondary fee, the secondary human in uh, Anna. And I looked up to try and see if she, you know, anything about this project Helios, nothing. So this was all pretty much made up for this book. And I don't think there's really much, sadly, that comes out of these characters aside from this book. But mm. th- they're interesting nonetheless. I was going to say, that's unfortunate because I, I really like Anya. because, mm-hmm. uh, And again, her uh, her sort of implied very heavy Russian accent and the broken English, like with Kyle's sort of internal monologuing, I thought was going to get annoying. And it it didn't annoy me at all. It just... It sort of gave a, a very good sense of character to me, and mm-hmm. uh, again, I was I was a little bit surprised, but I guess it just it just comes back to Chuck Dixon being very good at what he does. Mm-hmm. Well, and it could you know it could have been you know I don't want to call out Chris Claremont on this, but Chris Claremont did that heavy Russian accent with the character of Clausen in the, the X Men, and a lot of times that got kind of annoying. So <laughs> far, I don't think we, and it's never really that overt through this story there's a couple of times where she reverses some of the words but you don't see you don't see horrible russian stereotype like you kind of do in the uh, x-men books exactly once they get to way station we get a time we you know we get some more wonderful spaceship energy and i do kind of like that some of the spaceships here have a sort of 
familiar design. They look kind of similar because one of the things that always irks me in comics or even in even in sci-fi in general is that there's such a variety of spaceships and mm-hmm. I, especially for a certain area of space because I like the sort of Star Trek ideal that all the Federation ships have a sort of unified look. All the Klingon ships have a sort of unified look. It's because that's who the manufacturers are. And right. for, for a certain area, all the ships should sort of look alike. And they kind of got it here. So I, I enjoyed that. Um, Similar but not identical. Yes. Uh, there's some more good humor, you know, with the uh, scene where they go to the restaurant. And oh my gosh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's obviously a take on kind of the Star Wars uh cantina scene, which is which is fine. Uh I do love I, I don't know whether that's Gorilla Grodd in the background, but you know, it could be up in the and the up in that panel yeah. up there. And the the businessman devil angel over there on the far left side. Oh. That's just kind of, you know, he yeah. It's it's very it's it's some interesting little characters out there, and then there's obviously just some sort of generic Star Wars looking characters, right? But uh, you know, uh, it's 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 good artwork, much better than what we saw in the other issue, and it's it's yeah. all really fun. Now, I don't know if you know who Bo Smith is. He he may be completely off your radar, but uh, Bo Smith and Chuck Dixon were sort of contemporaries. They worked together, I think, initially either at Eclipse Comics or First Comics, doing sort of short stories there. And they're both very uh, big action-heavy writers. Mm -hmm. Bo Smith, for me, predominantly is known for writing the Guy Gardner Warrior series during the early 90s. Okay, yes. So this character, this four-armed purple character of Garl, specifically reminds me of a Bo Smith character, just a very beefy you know, take no prisoners, punch first, ask questions later type person. And I, I, I really enjoyed seeing that in the book. But uh, after the note on that, I really don't have all that many notes. I mean, it, it pretty much, you know, they get captured. Sewell, I guess, will become a, uh, as you can see, if you take a look yeah. at the cover. J- he judging also, the cover. Yeah, he'll obviously, get he'll get a ring as well. So, uh you know, we'll see more of him in, in the story. But other than that, the story pretty much plays out. They uh, have a trial. They have a very clever, you know, escape route with Anya holding up the uh, supposed vision device, which is actually... I was going to say, we'll, we'll call fake bomb mm-hmm. uh, clever. <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it was just a way for them to get out of this. And then they escape. And I, I love the fact that, you know, Kyle rings up a, a really cool looking sort of Flash Gordon type ship to get out of there with that's yes that's just awesome and it it also plays to kyle's knowledge of well kyle is more of an anime person mm. uh that, that's kind of how he's been portrayed in earlier episodes but i like the the flash gordon reference and being around this sort of weird space type thing it's nice that or this sort of space station it's nice that he brings this kind of thing up i think it i think it works in the story and uh you, you we get the ending, which I guess yes, is pretty stereotypical. You know, it's it's pretty cliched, but it does set up you wanting to figure out what's going to happen. So yep. it, it it gives you it gives you a sort of impetus for reading the next book. So I I enjoyed this book, and I'm I'm glad I'm glad that uh, you were here to help me cover this. Yes, I I definitely want to grab the second half of this. I am 
solidly well, intrigued. Well, I know, I know your father said that he has discovered a few of these prestige format format books in the quarter bin, but I don't know. Maybe I can, uh, uh maybe, uh, my friend Tor and, uh, <laughs> hook me up with an issue that I can shoot your way. That'd be awesome. Okay. Emily, this has been a joy to have you on the show. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, why don't you tell people uh, again where they can find you on the internet and what kind of things you're doing out there? All right. Well, my show is Uncovering the Bronze Age, where I'm reading about comics from a long time before I was even born, taking a look at stuff from currently the early 70s. Eventually, I'll move into the late 70s and the 80s. Uh, then there's the show that I do with my dad, which is the Short Box Showcase. And we talk about all sorts of uh, comic book concepts, not comic book issues. So the best comics in the world and various adaptations of comics, all, all those sorts of ideas, uh, the various ages of comics. And uh, sometime soon we should be releasing an episode on sidekicks, that sort of thing. Oh, that'll be fun. Yeah. And then uh, he does an individual show on his own, which is the Quarter Bin Podcast, where he talks about his favorite kind of comic books, cheap comic books. And those can all be found on our website, which is relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. They're also in iTunes. If you just search for Relatively Geeky Network or any of the show titles, you'll find those. Um, My show, unfortunately, does not update very often because it takes me about two to three months to actually... (laughs) Pick an issue, read an issue, come up with what I'm saying, record it, and edit it. But I'm trying. Well, I I heard the last one about uh, dealing with uh, Jimmy Olsen and Jack Kirby's Ugh. take on that, and yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, that was. It kind of goes to show that Jack Kirby did need Stan Lee there to sort of not really rein him in, but sort of uh, play off of him because well, sometimes when Jack Kirby gets out there, he gets out there. Yeah, I, I sort of get the feeling that, like, uh, I don't know what the exact metaphor would be, but that uh, Jack was in con- in control of the gas pedal and Stan did the steering. That <laughs> He just said, okay, Jack, just go and I'll point you in the right direction. I, I think that's a perfect, I think that's a perfect metaphor for the way the uh, Marvel method with Jack and Stan worked. So, yeah. But Emily, it was, it was great having you on the show. I, I'm glad that we at least got to cover, you know, one really enjoyable book. I'm sorry the Green Lantern Green Arrow crossover was a bit underwhelming. Well, it, it was, it was still worth it to read. I, I do not regret reading it. Well, that's, <laughs> I'm certain that's a ringing <laughs> endorsement for the show. <laughs> Thanks again for coming on, Emily, and thanks everyone. Thank you. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, we will see you here in seven days for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Until then, have a good week. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too. 
as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonsicore contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Gods, a Greenlander podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 110 of Green Lantern's Light. No, that's not it. Uh, I gave up. Uh, I gave up coffee for Lent, and uh, oh. I gave up all caffeine for Lent. So I'm running on just uh, sort of natural energy. So let me try this again. One one last bit of pre-show. Yes. Is that uh, as I was I was rooting around in my bins because I was like. I, I, I vaguely remember that I have a Green Lantern issue and only one. And I'm like, I wonder what one it is. And I pulled it up and it's actually the, the 150 issue 150 from uh, 2002. Oh yeah. That's one of the Judd Winnick ones. Yes, it is. I have not gotten, see, I will, I will fully admit this back in God, when like around issue 123 or 124, I dropped the Green Lantern book Partially because I just wasn't into it, but mostly because I was, I, I'd had my first child, you know, I was, mm-hmm. I'd been married for a while, I, and I got this idea in my brain, like, okay, I've got to give up the old comics, you know, I can't go to the comic book shop every week, and I've got to be a mature adult, I've got to be a dad now, so I stopped dropping. So I, I have not read any of Winnick's run, and I oh. really haven't, I haven't read much of Win, much of anything written by Winnick. Um, I've heard some pretty controversial things about him. Uh, a lot of people have said that when he came back to do uh, JLA Generation Lost a while back for uh, the pre-New 52 stuff, trying to right. sort of revamp the Giffen De Mateus Justice League, that was kind of a misstep that he really didn't get characters right. But I've heard, and I've heard when he was writing X-Men, I think, he doesn't work well on team books. I think that Michael Bailey has said this, but he said that the, his Green Lantern run is really pretty good. So I haven't read any of it yet. I'm looking forward to read it, and I'll I'll be interested to to hear what people think about it. Okay. Well, the reason that I bring it up is because issue 150 of Green Lantern from 2002 is my favorite single issue of a comic book that I have ever read. Really? Yes. I w- and I totally I had totally forgotten about it. I got I got this exact one that I'm holding in my hand is the first comic book I ever bought for myself. Wow. And I read it like every two or three months for about three years. And then like high school happened and then college happened. And then like second year at college, I was like, I kind of vaguely remember that. I wonder, was it actually good? So I reread it like three or four years ago. And then I hadn't reread it until yesterday. And then I was like, yep, still love it. But, uh, Again, Emily, thanks for coming on. Tell your father hi. Tell him sorry that I didn't have him on. 
I'm certain he's <laughs> nah, going to be all. I'm certain he's going to be all. Well, he can go bitch to Paul Spataro and <laughs> whine until he gets on the show again. <laughs> of course, I'm certain. Uh, oh, I, uh, yeah, he's in the other room. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm certain Paul will have him on again. You know when. <laughs> when when he or Bill or Scott don't want to do a pod, don't want to do a comic, I'm certain your father time, will be on the speed dial. Yeah, next time Scott's computer gets thrown into the sun or whatever happened, 